friends, welcome back to the Making It in the Messy Middle podcast. My name is Kate, and I'm so grateful that you're here with us today. I just can't wait to see how we're going to grow together. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is our fourth podcast on the topic of domestic violence. I feel like this has been a topic that has just been really beneficial to a lot of our listeners, um, maybe because it is helping you recognize the signs of abuse in your own relationships, maybe because it's validating to hear that something you went through or are going through is something that's you know recognized as a universal wrong. It could be because it's helping you know how to help a friend. Whatever reason you have for coming back, I just want you to know um, that I'm grateful, and I want you to know that your experience is is heard and is valid here. So over the past three weeks, we've been talking about a lot of tools that an abuser will use, shame, emotional turmoil, finances. This week, we're going to talk about another tool in an abuser's tool belt, and that's the tool of confinement. I feel like this is something that can often get really misunderstood. You know, some people think that it's locking someone away in a closet behind closed doors. And, you know, while that absolutely is a piece of this type of abuse, it's not the only way that an abuser can confine someone. You know, when I ask callers, people who call our crisis line, when I ask them questions about the types of abuse that they have experienced, I have this list of types um, that I ask about. But I don't like to just ask them straight out if they've been through a type of abuse for the simple reason they may not know that that's what they've been through. They may not know they've experienced that, not by that technical name anyway. So, for example, when I get to the question about financial abuse, which we talked about last week, I won't ask, have you experienced any financial abuse? Instead, I'll ask, does that person ever keep your money from you, steal from you, or leave you an allowance? Number one, this helps victims to understand the question better, to know better how to recognize, um, you know, what they want their answer to be. Another thing it does is it helps them to recognize something they've experienced actually is abuse. And it could help both me and them to know the true severity of their situation. But if I'd simply asked, have you experienced any financial abuse? They may not know what that is. And they may just say no. Confinement is one of those questions, you know, that's a lot like that. If I ask somebody if they've experienced any confinement, they're going to think about being locked in a closet. um, And they're going to probably say no if that's not something that they've been through, if that's not the type of confinement that they have experienced. And it's honestly, you know, a far more complex type of abuse than that. Confinement is this really essential tool for an abuser because it keeps their partner from engaging with the outside world. If their partner can't engage with the outside world, then they're unable to ask others if what they're going through is normal. Others are unable to tell them how much they care and then encourage them to leave. Um, Someone may be completely unable to get help when they need it. And they're ultimately completely vulnerable to whatever reality the abuser wants to impose on them because they have no evidence of a different reality. So a lot of times we'll get the question, you know, well, what does confinement look like? One thing that an abuser may do is they may take the only family vehicle. 
leaving their partner stranded at home, um, maybe with the children or maybe by themselves, but they take the vehicle um, so that there's no way for their partner to leave the house. Another thing they may do is they may take away their partner's keys in an effort to keep them from even using their own vehicle. So the car may be sitting in the driveway, but the abuser has the keys. And so how are you going to leave the house? You, you're still left there um, completely, you know, alone. Sometimes they'll take all of the gas money. Um, they may break something in the car and then they're essentially leaving someone with a vehicle that just isn't functional. Or they may refuse to get the car fixed when something breaks down. Again, leaving someone with a vehicle that isn't functional, stranding them at the house. They may tell their partner that they're not allowed to leave the house, um, you know, without the abuser by their side. And the partner, knowing the rage that their abuser can get, they know that it's safer to just stay home until they've been given permission to leave. So being bullied into staying in the house, um, using fear to keep someone in the house. It's, it's not all about locks. It's about a lot of other things. I mean, imagine not having that easy access to a vehicle, being completely helpless to others for anything you need outside of your home. All of these are portions of confinement. All of these have bits of confinement in them are absolutely ways that an abuser will confine someone. But I really want to focus on this really big thing an abuser can do in an effort to confine someone and completely cut them off from the outside. And that is taking their phone. If someone does not have a phone, they obviously have no means of communicating their need for help no way of talking to their friends and family, and no way to hear from their friends and family um, and the people who love them. A lot of the times, an abuser will take a phone for a period of time until they're ready to enter you know, this reconciliation or honeymoon portion of the abuse cycle. This is the part of the abuse cycle where the abuser becomes apologetic and tells these stories about how they want to change, all the things that they're going to do differently now. And we talked about this before. I don't think we've used the technical term so far when we've talked about the cycle of abuse. Um, but this is when they often bring gifts. And like I said, you know, they're just telling you all these ways that they plan to improve, all these things they plan to do differently. And they often do do things differently um, for a period of time. And so the purpose of this is to get their partner comfortable with them again. Um, and they, they do this until they're ready to enter the next step in the cycle, which is tension building. And so this is when a partner is going to start to walk on eggshells again because their abuser is getting angry, you know, more frequently and more easily. And so there's this fear of not knowing what is coming next. And then the next cycle is the explosion. There's a violent reaction of some kind. Um, and then, you know, they're going to want to re-enter back into that reconciliation and honeymoon phase. So the phone will often be taken, um, in or immediately following that explosion phase, because this is a way to keep the partner from seeking help or having means to leave. 
But then as the honeymoon period starts back again, you know, the partner may give the phone back and apologize for taking it and all those sorts of things. And this is so effective because in the honeymoon phase, an abuser's partner truly believes that things are going to change. So they may tell somebody about the incident that led to their phone being taken, but in their mind, that's far in the past. Even if it was only a day or two ago, they think they're telling a story of what they've been through instead of a story of what they're going through. Because in that honeymoon phase, they think the abuse is over. Things are going to change now. Things are going to be different. Some abusers will go so far as to break their partner's phone, throw it against the wall, things like that. Um, or they may cut the service off of someone's phone for periods of time and leave them, you know, totally helpless. And that can also be a portion of financial abuse. You know, a lot of these abuse types really tie in together. Um, and, you know, many abusers will create a ruse to get their partner's phone. They may not snatch it out of their hand, they may accuse their partner of cheating and, well, just give me your phone. I just need to see your phone. Prove to me that you're not cheating. Let me see your text messages. Or some may say, I need to keep your phone for a little bit because you're getting really triggered by social media right now. So just let me keep your phone. Uh, I just want to protect you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep your phone until you're more emotionally ready to have it. Or really any other gambit that they can think of to get that portal to the outside taken away. So I want you to imagine with me, just for a second, that you don't have a phone. Okay, that's hard for a lot of people to truly imagine, to really put themselves in that situation, because you live with it in your pocket, by your side. And even if it's not, you know, glued to your hand, you always have the security of knowing that you can get to it if you need to. You can call someone when you need to. You can look at things going on on the outside world whenever you want to. You can hear from your people whenever they want to get in touch with you. Imagine not having that security. Imagine that security being taken away from you without your permission at any given time and not knowing when you're going to get it back. I remember the first time I went to take the ACT um, you know, you can't have your phone in the building at all. And I remember reading those rules and I commented to my mom about it. And she thought, you know, well, she just doesn't want to be without Facebook for three hours. Um, she's going to get bored. But I looked at her and I was like, all that brain power in one building and no way to get help if we need it. You know, and looking back on that, I laugh a little bit. But I think about all the times I have had to be without a phone for whatever reason. You know, like the time my brother dropped it in the pool. You know, um, think about all those times, including when my abuser took my phone. And I remember that fearful and helpless feeling I got. You know, and it makes my stomach start to turn again. Abuse is ultimately about taking someone's control away from them. And taking their phone creates a helplessness and then forces reliance on an abuser. So just like we've done, you know, in the last three episodes, I want to look at some ways to recognize the signs of this type of abuse in your own relationships or your friend or family's relationships, and then some things that can be done to help people through these times. So the first step is to start noticing when you feel 
confined. When do you feel trapped? Like I've said many times before in these episodes, your gut is usually right. It's talking to you to tell you something for a reason. When you start to feel like you're trapped or you're stuck or you're not able to get in touch with people you want to get in touch with or feel you need to get in touch with, maybe you have to start canceling things because you don't have access to a vehicle. Maybe you have the thought, I want to call my mom, but you know you're going to get in trouble if you call your mom. Make a note of that. Like we talked about in the episode on emotional abuse, having that record for your own sake can help you to know that you're seeing things the way they are, not the way your abuser tells you they are. It can also help you to notice what led to that type of confinement, whether it be your phone getting taken away or your vehicle. This way you can start seeing that buildup in the future, just being more cognizant, just being more aware um, of your own emotions, but also of what's happening in your house. And it will be a, a lot easier to recognize that in the future. This way, if you decide it's time to leave, um, if you decide that's what you'd like to do, you can start to see the signs. You're about to lose your outside access and you can decide to get help before that happens if that's what you'd like to do. Help, it may look like telling a friend, you know, hey, if you don't hear from me uh, for two days or whatever period of time, then will you come physically check on me? You know, do that only if it's safe for you to have someone show up at your house, um, you know, without knowing that they're coming. That may not be something that's safe for you. But just if that is an option, have a friend come and do that. This friend can help you to leave if that's what you decide that you want to do. Or they can help you to gain some outside help in whatever way you're seeking. They may be able to help you with transportation so that you don't have to miss appointments. Or they can help you call the people you're wanting to talk to without your abuser being able to know that you did that. Whatever help you need, letting a friend know you need that is the first step. They can't help you with your needs if they don't know your needs. And this can give you a sense of control that your abuser is trying to take away from you. Now, if you know someone who mentions not having access to a phone or a vehicle, then you can be that friend who offers a ride. If you're financially able, you can be that person who offers to pay the phone bill for the month. You can be the person that reminds them, hey, you deserve to have a car. You deserve to have a way to get around. You should be able to call your mom when you want to. Things like that. And you can be the friend that checks in regularly to see how someone's doing and offer the ear that they need as well as the constant reminder. Hey, someone on the outside cares for you. We care about you. Remind them that their world is bigger than the one their abuser is trying to create. Abuse is about taking control away. Like we said, helplessness is a strong creator of trauma and perpetual fear. Resilience is about finding the ways you can take your power back, however you want to do that. So being that friend that helps someone see they still have power and they're allowed to use that power. They may not use that power in the ways that you think they should, in the ways that you want them to, but that's the point. It's their power. 
They can do with it what they feel is right. As always, be patient, be gracious, and be understanding. It can be a very scary and uh, frustrating thing to walk some walk beside someone you love and you know that they're in pain. A lot of times you're going to feel like you know what they need to do in order to get out or to get help or to be happy. But you have to realize that they know their situation better than you do. It may not be safe to leave. It may be safer to stay. You have to realize that they are just as scared, probably a lot more scared than you are. And that they're doing the best they can with the knowledge they have. Now, if you're the partner in this situation, um, if you have an abuser, I want you to know that it's not normal. And you deserve to have the security of knowing. Knowing that you are heard and your experience is valid, despite what your abuser may say. Hear me say that it is for you to decide what you need to do. And that people are standing by you no matter what you decide, because this is your life, and you deserve to be the author of your own reality. You have more strength in you than you know. You have more people behind you than you know. You have more life to live than you know. You have more joy to have than you know. So no matter what your situation, know that you're loved, know that you're heard, and know that you're seen. Keep on, friends.